Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hi, folks. Welcome to New Books in Medicine. I'm your host, Dana Greenfield, a medical student at UC San Francisco. Today on the show, I'll be speaking with Mara Bookbinder about her new book, All in Your Head, Making Sense of Pediatric Pain. Professor Bookbinder holds a master's in anthropology from Case Western and a PhD in anthropology from UCLA. Now she's an associate professor of social medicine at UNC Chapel Hill. She's also affiliated with the Department of Anthropology and the UNC Center for Bioethics. Her first book was entitled Saving Babies, The Consequences of Newborn Genetic Screening, co-authored with Stefan Timmermans. She's also co-edited a volume called Understanding Health Inequalities and Justice, Bridging Perspectives for New Conversations with Michelle Rifkin-Fish and Rebecca Walker. Today, though, we're talking about her new book on the management of chronic pediatric pain. I really enjoyed my conversation with her, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine. I'm Dana Greenfield, the host of the channel. Today, we're talking with Mara Bookbinder. Uh, She's Associate Professor of Social Medicine and affiliated with the Anthropology Department at UNC in Chapel Hill. And her new book is called All in Your Head, Making Sense of Pediatric Pain. So glad to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dana. I'm glad to be here. So I was wondering if we could start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, And I'd like to get a sense of what brought you to the field of anthropology. Sure. Um, 
So I, I guess I had kind of a, a slightly roundabout way of coming to anthropology. I did not study anthropology at all in college until my senior year. Um, I had been a psychology major and was very interested in health psychology. Um, actually, primarily because um, I have a chronic illness myself and um, worked in a mentoring program while I was an undergraduate student that paired uh, college students with uh, chronic illnesses with uh, youth in the area, adolescents in the area that had similar health conditions. So I uh, really wanted to study how adolescents dealt with chronic illness and ended up putting together kind of an interdisciplinary uh, senior honors thesis where I got exposed to medical anthropology and kind of fell in love with it. I feel like I hear that a lot from my friends who are in anthropology, this, this idea of like falling in love with it. And I'm wondering for you, what did that mean? Um, I really liked the idea that stories could be data. What initially drew me to medical anthropology was kind of the, the illness narrative framework that came out of work that Arthur Kleiman and others had done in the 1980s. And I, um, I, I wanted to explore that more. I really liked the idea that, that my research could be based on kind of asking people to tell me their stories about illness experience. And at the time... Um, I was actually using a, a visual illness narrative approach. So my thesis project was interdisciplinary because I was having adolescents make video illness, uh, video illness narratives or video diaries about living with type 1 diabetes. Um, and I just really liked the tools that anthropology gave me for thinking about that and for thinking about the value that stories can bring to understandings of illness experience. Yeah, I think I I totally resonate with that myself. Um, and I know that this pain project wasn't wasn't the only one that you began with. Um, previously, you were telling me that you were doing this work at the same time uh, as working on uh, genetic testing in newborns. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how how you came to pain uh, as a topic and how that related to this work that you were doing at the exact same time on something that's seemingly unrelated. Yeah. Um, I came to the topic because, um, really for pragmatic reasons, to be honest, there was a, a large scale study that was going on or sort of wrapping up in the clinic that I ended up doing my dissertation research in. And the director whom I call Dr. Novak in the book was just really open to the idea of ethnographic research. And I was kind of looking for a, a pediatric clinical setting where I could do long-term ethnographic work and became really um, excited about the idea of looking at chronic pain because it just seemed so rich and also so poorly understood. And it seemed to be an area where a, a social or a cultural lens could, could still add a lot to the literature. Um, and then the, the other project was um, some work that I was doing as a graduate research assistant at the same time, um, looking at the expansion of newborn screening. And so I was actually doing field work in a metabolic genetics clinic in the very same hospital. And it was um, atypical, I suppose, uh, uh, to do it that way because most um, most anthropology graduate students, when they're doing their dissertation, 
research, they're really completely immersed in that and only doing that. And I actually found it valuable to be collecting data for both projects at the same time because they sort of provided me with these built-in comparative reference points so I could kind of think about um, how language was being used in both clinics or, um, you know, how, how the clinics were both structured. And one of the things that was really helpful um, in shaping my understanding of the West Clinic which is the pseudonym that I give the pain clinic is, is that um, I knew from very early on that the clinic served a very affluent, very privileged population, but working at the same time in a clinic that had a much broader um, range of socioeconomic diversity really brought that home for me and helped me to kind of think about, um, about what that meant, what it meant, that the West Clinic would only take patients that that had private insurance and that kind of thing, and like what the consequences were for thinking about um, how the treatment models developed and how patients experienced the care that they received. And I, I think that I would have gotten there eventually had I not been working in the genetics clinic at the same time, but I think I made some of those connections more quickly and more easily because I was able to look at the two clinics alongside each other. Yeah. And I think an, another thing, thing that, um, make that I'm, that I, I'm sorry, Mara, I just, I'm getting a lot of feedback on your end. Um, I'll ask them to just edit out this comment, but, um, I'm no longer hearing it. Okay. So another thing that that makes me think about, um, the, the two clinics that is, is that they're both, very much uh, dependent on families or or the family, I should say, like clearly plays a large role. I mean, it does in pediatrics, but I mean, for sure within a genetic setting uh, as well as the pain setting. And I'm wondering um, if they taught you different things about the role of families. Yes. I mean, I, I think that in any pediatric setting, that's probably going to be the case. I would say the the role of the parents was quite different in each setting because in the genetics clinic, I was um, the, the patients were mostly nonverbal, right? Because we're talking about newborn screening patients, so these are newborn babies, and the physicians were kind of working exclusively with the parents. Whereas in the pediatric pain clinic, there was this very intricate dance between the physicians and the parents and the patients. Yeah, and I'll, I'd like to get to that uh, once we turn to the book. Um, but I wanted to also ask you, you know, you mentioned that um, you were excited about the tools of, of what the tools of anthropology could bring to pain. And I was wondering if you talk a little bit more about um, what ethnography uh, does for you when you're trying to understand pain. I think it brings an appreciation for context. I mean, pain we know kind of from the biopsychosocial model of pain, which is this idea that pain is, um, is all of these things. It's biological, it's psychological, and it's social. That pain is not only shaped by individual physiology. And so the social context and the cultural context as well of, of pain patients really matters. And I think that ethnography can bring um, a sensitivity to context uh, that can really help to illustrate how um, how context can shape the experience of pain. 
So how did you collect your data? What what were the sites that you were located in? And how did you decide who to follow and where did you follow them? Yeah, so um so the the study was fundam- fundamentally an ethnography of this particular multidisciplinary pediatric pain clinic, but I really wanted to get out of the clinic as well. So um, I I didn't want to limit myself to the clinic. And the idea was to follow individual patients in their pathways to the clinic and then um, in the clinic and then taking what they learned in the clinic out of the clinic. So I had four patients that I followed longitudinally, um, interviewed them before their first visit in the clinic, and then uh, video recorded their first appointment in the clinic, and then um, and then recorded in some cases additional um, interactions with other uh, healthcare providers aside from the physician, um, and then kind of spent time with them in their homes and sort of looked at how the the clinic's therapeutic approach made a difference for those particular patients. Then I had another group of um, patients and families whom I observed in the clinic and maybe interviewed one time, but didn't necessarily follow them longitudinally. And did you go outside of the clinic to try to understand pain in a more broader sense, like what the field of pain medicine was about? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I went to a couple of conferences and that comes out in the book as well. Um, I I was really interested in kind of being able to situate what this was, what was happening in this clinic within kind of a broader landscape of pediatric pain medicine in general. And I traced some of the debates that were happening within the field. Um, And then, you know, I think societally, I talked quite a bit about schools. I didn't do any participant observation inside of schools, but I, I thought about schools and how the school context mattered for these individual patients and how kind of the achievement orientation of our society mattered for the experience of pain and what happened to patients in the aftermath of of a major chronic pain episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that just made me wonder if there were any places that you, uh, if you had all the time and all the access in the world, if there were places that you wish you could have gone to to round out your understanding of pain. Cause I feel like, uh, you know, we always see where people went when they did ethnographies, but like behind the scenes where there's so much brainstorming and work and effort that goes into thinking about where else you could like look and locate pain. Cause it's almost unlimited. So I was just curious if there were other places that if there was further work in this area that you could have, would have done. I think it would have been great to, um, to have more access to some of the therapeutic sessions with um, the clinicians on the multidisciplinary team. So I was able to observe a couple of those sessions, but many of those providers were fairly protective of of the kind of therapeutic space with individual patients for good reason. Um, But I think it would have been helpful for me to see, for example, some of the hypnotherapy sessions or, um, you know, what a one-on-one art therapy session might look like. I was able to interview the art therapist about some of the patients um, that she worked with, but I I didn't directly observe any of those sessions. Yeah. And I think one thing that's 
exciting about anthropology are all these possibilities, but the limits is there's, you, can, you can't be in all places <laughs> all the time. Um, so can you describe the, the clinic for us a little bit more in detail? Sure. Um, it was, so it was a, a multidisciplinary pediatric pain clinic that was based within an academic medical center. Um, and then it was sort of unique in the sense that it referred, so every patient that came into the clinic would have an appointment with one of two physicians. There was also a psychiatrist that, um, that worked with the team and sometimes saw patients in the clinic, but also saw patients in a private practice located outside of the clinic. And what was unique about the clinic is they had this amazing multi- multidisciplinary team, but the team members were not employed by the um, medical center. So patients would be referred to these providers, but they, but they all had their own private practices located um, in various places in the community. So that was um, one of the reasons why the clinic really um, privileged patients from more um, socioeconomic advantage backgrounds because many of these therapeutic modalities um, were ones that didn't um, accept insurance. And so it was private pay and uh, it also required parents to be doing a lot of driving all over the place. And this is Southern California, so there's a lot of traffic. Um, So it was um, a unique model in that sense. And I think it reflects some of the difficulties that, um, that we have seen with getting things like complementary and alternative medicine incorporated into um, sort of conventional biomedicine. Right, right. And, I, and in the beginning of the book, you, you spend some time talking about how this clinic is exceptional in some ways, um, in, in that it's, and I don't, I'm not sure if you meant just because of how how integrated it was into these sort of community providers, or if that was because of the unique perspective of Dr. Novak um, and her colleagues. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how um, how unique it was uh, and how different it might have been from other pain practices uh, around the country. Yeah, I mean, I think this model where it's a clinic, but the where it's a a team, but the members of the team are not actually um, hospital employees. That was the key difference. And it it was often a bit of a surprise for families because they were sort of expecting that they would just go and their insurance would be accepted. And it would sort of be all, um, you know, that seeing the hypnotherapist or seeing the family therapist would be a similar kind of charge as seeing the physician. Um, so that was kind of the drawback. The advantage was that Dr. Novak had put together a team of people that she had kind of hand-selected and were really outstanding, absolutely phenomenal clinicians. And so when it worked and when families were able to get their children seen by these clinicians, um, they were really able to... Um, to sometimes make just a profound difference um, because they were they were quite gifted clinically, um, and also that 
the team kind of approach, I mean, I talk a little bit in the book about it, it working almost like a surrogate family. And there was this real sense of this whole team coming together to try to make things better for a patient and the patient's family. And even just that sense of caring and commitment um, on its own could be therapeutic. Um, so I, I don't want to give the impression that um, that sort of what was exceptional about the clinic was um, was bad or, or was, ex- you know, that it only excluded people um, because I think that there was a lot of good that came out of this model, um, but it had its limits at the same time. Yeah. And I think also when I say exceptional or when we say exceptional, we also refer to particularity, right? And that has its own special spot in anthropology about um, paying attention to and tracing what's particular about things as well as universal to say a human experience. Um, And so you talk about when people reach this clinic um, in the first chapter, uh, how they're reaching the quote bottom of the funnel. And that's the the title of, of your first chapter after the introduction. And that's just one of the many metaphors. Uh, and I, I believe that's not, that's not your phrasing. That's the phrasing of Dr. Novak that they use. And uh, in this chapter, you spend a good deal of time talking about and introducing um, these very vivid mem- metaphors that the clinicians and the patients used to help make sense of pain. Um, and there's a lot in these metaphors, uh, as there always is. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about the importance of metaphors from the perspective of narrative in anthropology. Um, and then maybe tell us a little bit about, about the metaphors themselves that they use. Sure. Um, you know, I think metaphor has been studied from just really broad range of fields as um, being really important to meaning making. And um, metaphor, I think, is really important to pain because pain escapes language. And um, or that's kind of the, the standard view anyway of pain is that it's, um, it's difficult to represent it and it's difficult to kind of um, escape the privacy of pain. And so metaphor can sort of provide another um, another mode of representation when ordinary language escapes us. And I think that's really what I saw happening at the West Clinic. And I think that um, one of the values of metaphor that really came out in my field work at the West Clinic is that metaphor can be quite persuasive as well. Um, for sort of communicating an authoritative view of pain. Pain is um, ambiguous and it's uncertain and it's poorly understood, but when we can use metaphors to represent it, it seems a lot more legitimate and um, authoritative and scientific. Um, So I guess, you know, the, the metaphors that I really address in that first chapter have to do with, um, sort of neurochemical ways of thinking about pain. And I, so that they, um, Dr. Novak and also some of the 
other pediatric pain practitioners that I interviewed from other clinics had this way of talking about um, chronic pain as a software problem and not a hardware problem, and and how um, chronic pain results from flaws in the neural signaling. And this was really, this kind of a way of um, thinking about pain in some ways was um, a corrective to older, more mechanical ways of thinking about pain. Um, hmm. Pain is kind of uh, caused by um, a broken body. So doctor, the, the physicians would say, you know, uh, it's not it's not that anything's broken, but there's um, a defect in the neural signaling. And I think mm-hmm. using this neurobiological imagery really helped to give this chronic unexplained pain a sense of legitimacy and a sense that it's not, no, it's not all in your head. Like this is a real biological problem. And um, the reason we haven't understood it thus far, the reason why all of the diagnostic tests have... Um, have come back negative is because we haven't been using the right tools and we don't really have great tools for looking at your neural signaling. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that metaphors are so powerful for anthropologists or other social scientists is that they do give us a window into um, larger social phenomena, historical phenomena. And I'm wondering, do you have a sense of when that mode changed from a more mechanical view of the body being broken to this more computer or network uh, metaphor? Mm, that's a good question. And I, I don't, I mean, I, I think I would have to do a little more research in order to, to answer that question. And it's been a little while since I've really been looking at the pain literature. Um, it, it may have had something to do with the gate control theory of pain, um, but I forget exactly when that was introduced. Yeah, no, I, I just, I, it just occurred to me that that, um, that, that, that maybe we take it for granted that computer metaphors have been with us for some time, but I'm just wondering like when it entered or, or maybe coexisted with older metaphors uh, in, in formal pain literature. Um, and, and that sort of gets to my second question in general, which is, you know, what, what are the, what are these metaphors sort of telling you about what's going on in a broader sense about how we're experiencing our bodies Um that might be a really big question also. <laughs> it is, but, um, you know, I mean, I think that um, some of the metaphors are um, trying to get around mind-body dualism, right? And so, and I, I think that the kind of neurobiological language is a way um, of saying that the pain can be in your head, but not in a purely psychological um, sense. So that's not to say that the pain is kind of made up or unreal, but it's in your head because um, the head is kind of the, the seat of neurobiological functioning. And I think there's been a broader move in our society to to want to adopt those neurobiological explanations. Mm-hmm. What do you feel like they they limit us, or how do you feel like they limit um, 
the folks in the pain clinic and using those metaphors because they clearly like open up, open things up for patients and sort of get them out of um, the the all in your head, quote unquote, uh, uh, paradigm. But I'm also wondering, like, how do they limit us and how we think about pain as well? Right. Um, Well, I mean, I think that they don't necessarily provide they they provide sort of a a just so story. I mean, they pro, they provide a plausible narrative, but it doesn't really um, resolve questions about responsibility uh, and blame. I mean, we can still sort of blame ourselves for um, for neurobiological problems, and I think that ultimately the the kind of treatment strategies that um, that went along with these neurobiological metaphors still really relied heavily on individuals to, um, to do the work themselves and kind of take responsibility for their pain and their bodies and, um, actively combat the pain. So they, they certainly didn't provide an easy out. And I think some families were looking for sort of an easy mechanical fix. So there was one family, for example, that that left the clinic and um, ultimately got a neurostimulator device for their child because they wanted that sort of a, a mechanical fix. Right, and uh, and a neurostimulator is sort of an implanted device, and was it in this case in the spinal cord? Yeah, um, that delivers like electronic messages that help to sort of in in a broad sense, like confuse the brain in terms of signals that are coming in and lessen the sensations of pain. Um, At least that's my vague understanding of it. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, one of one of the sort of metaphorical tools that gets used a lot and which you get get into in your second chapter um, is the idea of sort of smartness and the smart clinic. Um, and I was wondering if you could describe that. Like what what is the smart clinic? Like why is why is the clinic sort of dubbed the smart clinic? And, and how does that relate to these evolving ideas of pain, chronic pain, I should say? So Dr. Novak um, called the West Clinic the Smart Clinic because she um, noticed over time that the the patients that she tended to see in her clinic were smart, high achieving. Um, they they tended to excel in the arts or in sports or in various extracurricular pursuits, um, and so when they would come in and sort of um, she would. And all of her first appointments um, were two hours long. And so there would be quite a lot of time for for the physicians to get to know the patients. And so they would begin to kind of describe what they were up to in junior high or high school. And she would say, well, you know, I call this the smart clinic and, and you really fit that profile. And I think it was a way of... Um, I became fascinated by this early on in my field work because um, it was so unexpected that there would be this constellation of traits that would hold these patients together. And um, as I came to do a little more research, um, I realized that actually it's maybe not historically unprecedented and there have um, um, 
historically been sort of cases of um, behavioral, behavioral or personality traits clustering around particular illness conditions. And I got interested in tracing some of that in the book. But I think part of what she was doing is she was trying to turn their pain into kind of a more positive experience and, and to um, say, you know, this is not like pain can be very um, morally loaded and people can be blamed. Chronic pain patients can be blamed. And she was sort of saying, like, actually you have this because of something good about you and because of some really strong character attributes. And what I saw over time is it was true that many of the patients did fit the profile of the smart patient, but I also saw that she would sometimes apply that label um, to patients that didn't quite fit. And so she was kind of using it rhetorically in a sense too. Um, you know, even if it was a B student, which by today's standards due to grade inflation is not necessarily a particularly brilliant student, but she would kind of still say, oh, and you know, you're so smart and this is the, the smart clinic. Um, so it was interesting how it, I think it was both an accurate representation and something of a more um, pragmatic tool. Mm -hmm. And is that what you mean? Is that what you meant by personhood diagnostics, that term that you talked about in that chapter? Yeah, I, I introduced that term to talk about the ways that personality traits become folded into understandings of um, of illness and, and sort of how she would um, mobilize their, their smartness and their achievement in both her diagnostic explanation, but then also in her therapeutic plan for how those skills and strengths were going to help the child to to overcome the pain. Mm, yeah. And if I read this correctly, it seemed like that was all still tied to these like neural network or computer um, metaphors for how, how the brain worked and how chronic pain was elaborated because they, uh, the smart kids, you know, quote unquote, were um, in some ways like very highly attuned to their environments or highly attuned to the world and just were high, very sensitive. And so they sort of provided a substrate for producing chronic pain. Is that, is that correct? And in, in how she was sort of applying that metaphor? Exactly. exactly. I mean, she talked about their, their neurons in a sense being too smart. So as the, just as the um, child was, Smart in making connections and learning things easily, it was like the pain signals had become overdetermined because they were making connections really easily, and um, and then pain was kind of getting entrenched because of those connections. And that seemed really um, similar to the sticky brains phenomenon as well, right? I mean, which is your your third chapter. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about sticky brains? And um, I'm really interested in the, the PDD, um, which now I'm, I'm completely forgetting the, the, what that stands for, the pervasive developmental disorder. That's it. Um, the PDD and the PDD-ish. And how that is how, also your perspective on that now that that's sort of um, fallen out of the latest DSM. So 
Can you explain that a little bit? Sorry, there's a lot in there, but um, it's all related. So the PDD, so um, this idea of sticky brain was a metaphor that was used to describe a subset of the clinic's patients whom were believed to show signs of a pervasive developmental disorder. And they use that category kind of broadly um, in, in the sense, so um, PDD used to be one of the five disorders that was on the autism spectrum. And um, they used it in kind of a broad sense to refer to um, characteristics of kids that we might think of as falling on the high functioning end of the autism spectrum. Um, and they, they weren't really using it in a like strictly DSM sense, but they were using it as kind of a heuristic to, um, to talk about kids that shared some characteristics, um, with, um, patients that we might think about as having high functioning autism. So, um, uh, sensitivity to, um, to light or, um, you know, a perseveration on particular ideas, things like that. But they also found that in those kids, um, it, treatment was often very difficult and it was sometimes really difficult to get these kids to improve. And so they had this explanatory model that, that tied the difficulties they experienced in treatment to the fact that they had so-called sticky brains. And so the neurons were not only smart, but they were also sticky. And it was really difficult to kind of rewire the neural circuitry because of that. I'm wondering, you know, for, for those kids, did they, did they seem to be pretty refractory even to like this clinic's interventions? A lot of them did. Um, a lot of them did. I mean, I, I, did see some improvement with some of them. So the, the, what's interesting is the child that I talk about a lot in chapter two, um, Michael Harris, who is a prototypical smart kid. Like he was one that they actually talked about as being PDD-ish behind the scenes. Sort of, I, I talk about it as the clinic's backstage. So they would talk about him that, in that way in the team meetings, but never mentioned it to the family and he did get better. Um, you know, I think he's a kid that probably continued to struggle, but there were improvements. Um, so it, it wasn't impossible, but I think it was often the case that the PDD label kind of seemed to attach to kids that just weren't doing well in treatment. So we can ask really, is it about the kid or is it kind of about the therapeutic trajectory? And sometimes lines got blurred. And I f I'm now even just noticing like the language I was even using to describe, to describe the patients where I said the patient was refractory <laughs> to, to treatment. I was kind of like putting the blame on him. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about Michael actually? What, what, did, what brought him to the, the clinic and describe what his pain was? So he was one of the younger kids that I wrote about. He was only, I think, 12 at the time that I did this work. And he had a pretty 
typical pain complaint um, for a kid in this clinic. He had chronic abdominal pain. Um, he had been worked up by GI and I think probably worked up by other specialties as well. And um, they, they couldn't find anything organically wrong with him. So, um, you know, this is a, a kid that would um, typically be diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and that's what Dr. Novak ultimately did diagnose him with, but she had a way of turning that into a much more kind of credible and um, legitimate sounding diagnosis than it it might sound like if you got that diagnosis from a gastroenterologist. Um, so when Michael came to the clinic, he was out of school. He His parents were just completely beside themselves. And he did very well with treatment, um, some of which was pharmaceutical, but a lot of which was hypnotherapy. Um, and he, he was able to kind of buy into this paradigm of rewiring his neural circuitry through hypnotherapy. And it was, it was pretty cool to see because, especially because he sort of went into it with this attitude of being really skeptical about that kind of an approach. Oh yeah, that is that is quite young. And so he was one of these also really smart kids, or it seemed like he seemed like pretty precocious. Um, and in the interview excerpts, um, I really did see how the physician would appeal to that part of him, right? That that you know that this gift that he had, being so smart and precocious, was also sort of um, a risk factor, I guess, uh, for why he was experiencing all this pain. And I think throughout the book, and but especially as you get to the chapters about at the end about family and then the social context, you really show, see how there's this um, awkward dance uh, between the the individual and like what's in, in the individual and within the power of the individual and, and requiring their, their um, autonomy and willpower, I guess, and to fix themselves and the outside context, which is to blame. Um, and like basically locating pain, just the difficulty of, of locating pain. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that with regards to the family uh, with regards to families and with regards to the social context, um, maybe starting with the family. Yeah, I mean, that I think is part of what makes the treatment of pediatric pain so complicated and probably much more complicated than treating um, adult pain, even um, in the current, the current opioid crisis, um, which is just that you're you're having to treat the child, but the child's pain is shaped so much in response to what's going on in the family. And you're often very powerless to, to treat the family dynamics. I mean, some families are open to the idea that um, the family dynamics are implicated in the management of pain, if not in kind of the genesis of pain, but but many families become very defensive when that is raised as a factor, and they think that it is sort of a, a brush off and and like a saying, you know, the pain isn't real. We're going to focus on the family dynamics. So 
it just becomes really difficult for clinicians to manage that. And um, I think many feel like you can only go so far just focusing on the patient. Um, and so I think that sort of careful orchestration between family and, um, and child is, is one of the things that I found really, really fascinating about working in this context. Um, so hard to kind of get right, even with well-meaning, really compassionate, empathic clinicians. There are just so many ways in which one can kind of go be led astray. Yeah. And I imagine um, there are some families who are going to be amenable to um, opening up the family as a site of therapeutic intervention. And then others who, like you said, are going to shut down or um, feel that the blame is being put on them. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us about one family that you highlighted, the the Joffies. Is that how you say their name or the Joffs? Sure. We can say Joffy. I mean, it, it's a pseudonym. So It's a pseudonym. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so that was another one of these longitudinal case studies that I followed really intensively along with Michael Harris. Um, and Claire was uh, a fascinating person. She was really talented. She wasn't necessarily um, academically gifted, but she was really gifted at drawing and art, and she was also really gifted at sports. And it's a little bit unusual to see that combination together. Um, she started with back pain. And so she had been through a series of, um, of workups with orthopedists and, um, and neurologists and sort of onward from there. And then soon after she came to the clinic and I, I did meet her just before her first appointment in the clinic. And then I think actually maybe the night before her first clinic appointment, she had a pseudo seizure and she started to have these episodes of completely blacking out and having these pseudo seizures. And um, she was taken to the hospital by paramedics a couple of times. So it was a very distressing um, time for her family. And uh, it, it, the clinicians in the West Clinic were also quite worried about her. I mean, she had... Um, for a little while, she had weekly appointments there, which was a bit unusual um, as they were trying to get a handle of what was going on. And so they kind of cycled through a variety of different explanations for her pain as they were trying to make sense of, um, of these symptoms that really crop up a lot when we think about um, uh, these older illness conditions like hysteria. Um, Things that like Freud wrote, wrote about. So, you know, initially they gave her the very same kind of um, personhood diagnostic sort of uh, spiel and they talked about her neural signaling, um, but then they became a little bit more interested in family dynamics as a site of, um, of tension and um, possibly contributing to the pain, like especially after she developed these pseudo seizures and, and um, that they, they were hard to control. And 
then um, there was this, her, her family was put in a very difficult position because, um, because of the pseudo seizures, Claire, they were afraid of leaving her alone. So they, they, they started sleeping next to her on the floor um, on a mattress because she had done some injurious behavior to herself in the midst of one of these seizures. They were afraid of having to go to the bathroom by herself. So then the family, the uh, sorry, the team started talking about, you know, their concerns that this um, watchfulness was not appropriate for a 14 year old girl and that she needed to have a bit more space, especially from her father. There were some gender ways of kind of looking at this dynamic as well. Um, so, you know, that was a case that, that was really baffling and troubling. And, and ultimately she, she got better. Um, but there was a sense that no one ever had a very clear explanation for what happened with her. Right. Right. I mean, she's, she's one example also where she, she exceeded the metaphors in some ways. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the, the medical part of me is really, really curious if she ever got, um, like a more specific diagnosis. <laughs> I just want, I reading her story. I just couldn't help. I mean, there's the anthropology in me reading it. And then the, um, almost physician in me reading it is thinking like, Oh, but, but did they get an answer? <laughs> Was there a diagnosis? And, and I'm curious, did they ever sort of, uh, clarify, um, what was going no, on? I mean, I don't, I don't think they ever got any more of a diagnosis um, than what was given to her in the West Clinic. And I, I saw her, um, I think, a year, maybe more after I finished the study, and she was doing really well um, and, you know, had moved on from this period. So I didn't get the sense that there was an ongoing diagnostic odyssey or anything like that. Oh, interesting. And so did the, did you feel that addressing the family issues was what really helped her? Or was it com- just a combination of all it's the things? It's hard to like, know, right? I mean, it's one of those things where it's really hard to know what it was that helped her. I think one thing that helped her more than anything was having this really supportive team about her a lot. I really think a lot of the family issues were sort of a red herring, and I'm not sure much of what was concerning came up only in the context of managing what was sort of an acute situation. Right. So, so I, I mean, who knows? It, it's really hard to know what's going on with these families, but I was never convinced that there was um, strong evidence for um, more enduring family pathology. Right. Right. Um, so how did the clinic deal with the more social locations of, of pain, like the school stressors and those? Yeah. I mean, school came up a lot because a lot of these kids came to clinic, um, having stopped going to school and some of them were enrolled in homeschool programs and some of them had just kind of stopped going because they were in too much pain. And so the goal was always to try to get them back into school. And they had a child and family therapist that was really good at this. And she would um, talk to a lot of the schools and she would, you know, at first 
often try to get kids to go back just for lunch period, not even doing anything academically, but just to try to um, reintegrate them socially into their peer groups. Um, There was a lot of discussion about the pressures on adolescents today and, and, you know, this sense that some of this pain was um, at more of this societal level happening because kids today are under so much pressure um, to excel and they're thinking about college. And a lot of this has to do with the particular socioeconomic demographic that I'm talking about in this clinic. They're very concerned about um, chances for future success and, and that sort of getting into a good college is important for that. So uh, there were lots of discussions in the team meetings about these issues. Yeah, and it made me think about what does um, social context mean to the clinic, you know? And I and I think about this all the time in medicine because we, and as as you know, in a clinical encounter, you're um, one of the parts of the history that you take is the social history, and from what a doctor thinks of as social is very different from what a social scientist or anthropologist thinks of as social. Um, and so I'm wondering if you thought about that vis-a-vis the, the clinic and, and what their view of the social was. I think this particular clinic had a very rich understanding of the social. And I think part of that um, was because Dr. Novak, um, actually, it's interesting, she had... Um, I think when she was an undergraduate, she had gone to see Margaret Mead give a lecture and (laughs) for anthropology and ethnography. And um, she tried to incorporate that into her work. I mean, it's so rare to have a clinical setting where a priority is made to have a two hour intake appointment. And obviously that model is, is not that sustainable. Um, I think it was really important to her. I think also because there was an interdisciplinary team and you were getting multiple different providers' perspectives on a particular patient, that was really important to kind of having an enriched understanding of what the social context looks like. Um, there, there were, like for certain patients, they would open up more to certain providers on the team than others. And um, so I think... Like part of the context is not only what's happening in the patient's social world, but also what different kinds of information can be gleaned from the multiple perspectives of a multidisciplinary team where everyone has a different relationship with this patient. And it's probably not going to be the physician that has the closest relationship. I, I actually found that to be true also in other interdisciplinary settings that I've been in um, as a medical student where, yeah, I think, and maybe that's because, um, you know, the, so in a psychiatric setting, like the physician is titrating medicines, whereas the, maybe the psychotherapist is the one who's engaging in psychodynamic therapy or CBT or something that involves more um, engaging with like the narrative of the person's life. Um, and so sometimes when you get these multidisciplinary settings, the, uh, the physician like practices at what it, I, I, I'm almost saying this pejoratively, but at the, the top of their license, I don't know if you've heard that term before, um, but it's, it's this idea of 
of in a healthcare setting, like the physician shouldn't be doing work that a nurse can do, or the physician shouldn't be doing the work that the 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 PA or the uh, triage nurse can do. They should be doing the thing that is like the most difficult at the top of their license. And the same thing with the nurse. The nurse should be doing what's at the top of their license. So sometimes in these interdisciplinary settings, I find that um, it might be efficient and it, it probably is much more efficient, but I sometimes lament that um, uh, the physician's role gets like uh, cornered a bit. Um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, it doesn't seem like that's what happened happened in this clinic. Um, but uh, that is something that I feel that I've experienced. So um, I'm I'm just looking at the time, and we're we're sort of we're running low. Um, but I had I had some broader questions for you about what you learned about pain writ large and from this clinic. And you know we we're living uh, in the era of the opioid epidemic. Um, which is also a chronic pain ec- epidemic. And um, I felt like that the, those two things were a bit like, they're almost like an elephant in the room for me reading this book. Um, and I was wondering what this work taught you or, or could teach us about the broader, like addressing the broader uh, situation that we're in with pain and opioids. Well, you know, it's interesting because... The, the first project that I pursued when I came to UNC to start my faculty position was a study of um, communication about opioids in the emergency department. And part of the reason why I wanted to do that study um, is because I felt like what I had gotten from this work in the West Clinic was just a slice of what pain management is like for kind of a small sliver of society. And I really wanted to understand what it's like for um, a much broader segment of society. And I felt like to do that, I had to go to the emergency department because that's where, unfortunately, a lot of people in this country get their pain treatment. Um, And so, you know, that didn't turn out to be a huge project for a variety of reasons, but I, I did a little bit of work there and wrote a couple of papers. And And one thing that I learned is that it wasn't kind of all about getting the pain meds, at least for the patients in this particular ED that I was working on, um, that they were often given meds because there was so much else that they lacked. Um, they lacked a primary care physician. They lacked like basic healthcare resources and opioids were given because it was just the only thing that could be given in that setting. And so I guess um, the way, I mean, that's sort of a roundabout way of answering your question, but I think that what I learned is that what patients who, patients who have chronic pain really need a variety of kinds of tools to deal with it. And even with all the different um, services that the West Clinic had um, available, it was rarely kind of an easy fix, but but that a lot of patients could get somewhat better with those tools. Um, so I think in terms of understanding what that has to say about the opioid epidemic, I think the issue is that we've been focused on kind of combating the, um, 
the problems with these medications and not sort of looking again at context and sort of at the broader social and structural context of um, people's lives that has led to this crisis. Um, And so I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I think that if we had better tools for treating chronic pain, then we might not be in the situation that we're in. And if we could get, um, multidisciplinary treatments reimbursed and funded, we might not be in the situation that we're in, but also like if we had just kind of basic healthcare, universal healthcare and like dealt with poverty and other things, then, you know, we can sort of see how all these things go together. Right. And not, and not just the medication, that's this substitution for care, you know, this like symbolic substitution for care. Um, well, I see we're running out of time, but if we have a couple more minutes, maybe you can just really quickly tell us what you're working on next. Sure. Um, I am about to start writing a book um, about physician aid in dying or physician assisted suicide. Um, I have just wrapped up about two years of field work looking at the implementation of Vermont's aid in dying law. And I um, have spent the past couple of summers and some additional time interviewing um, physicians and nurses and family caregivers and patients and also activists and policy stakeholders about their perspectives on the law and their experiences with it. And um, I'm, I'm really, it's, it's been an incredible project. It references pain a lot um, more more than maybe I expected, but also um, I'm seeing how kind of the the family and social context of care for the dying is really integral in a way that harkens back to my work on All in Your Head as well. Um, so I will be, um, I, I'm, I've been kind of working on analyzing the data and I'm, I'm going to be getting started on writing a book about this project um, over the summer. That sounds really exciting um, and really important work. Um, thank you so much, Mara, for your time. Uh, it was really generous, uh, and it, I really enjoyed reading your book, and it's really helped me think about um, the chronic pain patients that I've seen, um, and I'm excited to sort of use some of your insights as I become a pediatrician. Um, well, thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for having me. Yeah, bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and inspired you to read on. I think in the midst of this opioid epidemic, um, so much talk is around the drugs. But what's clear is that we got here by fundamentally misunderstanding and mistreating the pain. And I think we need a cultural and social reckoning uh, with pain, how it's socially embedded and shaped, the power we give it, how we explain it, and ultimately how we treat it. Uh, Professor Bookbinder's work is a great starting point for that. And I think what she shows is that in pediatrics, we're already primed to consider the entire family and social context of a child as is part of their suffering and their potential healing. And right now I'm currently rotating through an adult pain clinic. And while they provide great care and think about their patients holistically, it's definitely still narrowly focused on that individual sitting in front of them. And I think until we can widen that lens for every patient, not just in the clinic, but thinking outside of the clinic, uh, we're not really going to get to the bottom of this problem. Anyway, I'm excited to continue to follow her work. And thanks for listening all. And as always, I welcome your reactions, thoughts, and feedback. 
You can find me on Twitter at Dana G Field and at New Books Med. Bye.